0: Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present this week's episode of My Passion Case with Mike Morford from Criminology, where we discuss the Golden State Killer.
1: Recently, DNA evidence linked the East Area Rapist to 10 killings and dozens of other rapes in Santa Barbara. Sacramento's East Area Rapist has been active for 16 months.
0: It's so warm in Concord tonight that people have their doors and windows open, mm-hmm. but the police are saying lock up tight. Sacramento's infamous East Area
1: Rapist
2: may still be in town. He raped a 29-year-old housewife near the Ignacio Valley Shopping Center at 5.30 this morning. Her husband was tied up nearby and had to listen. Her eight-year-old daughter was locked in the bathroom. Concord police responded to 200 phone calls in the first few
1: hours after word got out about it. Mike Boyd, KCRA News. Yesterday, an arrest warrant was issued. A complaint was filed charging that individual with two counts of murder in special circumstances for the murder of Brian and Katie Maggiore here in Sacramento in February 1978. It is fitting that today is National DNA Day. We found the needle in the haystack, and it was right here in Sacramento. In a perfectly
0: executed arrest, My detectives arrested, James Joseph D'Angelo.
1: The young victim was attacked in her Rancho San Miguel home. Police are urging everyone in the Concord, Walnut Creek, and San Ramon area to be on the lookout and to report strangers in their neighborhoods who seem to be just hanging around or displaying any other suspicious behavior. This is Betty Ann Bruno in Walnut Creek for the 10 o'clock news. Sacramento County investigators say they're making progress into their search for the suspect responsible for 31 rapes during the 1970s in the county. He's the East Area Rapist. He attacked dozens of women, raping some and killing others. The attacks started back in the 70s, but he still continues to elude police. For over 40 years, countless victims have waited for justice. There were upwards of 50 rapes, 12 murders. Crimes that spanned 10 years across at least 10 different counties.
2: The young girl's father and
0: older sister were inside the residence at the time, were unaware of the attack. By late fall, when the East
1: Area Rapists began claiming two and three victims a month, citizens began buying everything they could think of to protect themselves. Don't panic, because that alters your judgment. All too often, we forget about talking about the victims. And today, we at least
2: brought the first step towards closure for those victims of these horrendous crimes. Getting an awful lot of calls, uh, people reporting uh, prowler calls, the suspicious circumstances. Some people even turning in their neighbors because they think if he's, he might be the
1: rapist. Gun sales are way up, even when calling the local sheriff's office. When all circuits are tied up, the number still rings in an annex and cannot be heard or answered until a line clears. Many of those involved with the case say the East Area Rapist lives within the area where he operates.
2: You're talking about the most prolific serial offender in california history
1: there are two things unknown about the rapist currently terrorizing sacramento one is he has never been caught in a home where there was a man present the other is he's never been in a home where there has been a big dog present he's been called one of the most prolific criminals in our state's history
0: striking first in sacramento and he has never been captured
2: the fbi and sacramento county sheriff's detectives released new sketches And they upped the reward to $50,000.
1: Teenage girl was raped today in her home in Contra Costa County. And though officials are not saying it was the work of the East Area rapist, they do say the crime was committed in his style. With this guy, the next rape could be anywhere. You've heard of this guy, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. But do you know who this is? This rapist and killer is known as the original Night Stalker. We knew we could and should solve it using the most innovative DNA technology available at this time. I'm very pleased to announce that this morning in Ventura County we have filed capital murder charges against Mr. DeAngelo for the March 1980 murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Let me first by saying this, the answer has always been in Sacramento.
0: I was wearing some a type of a mask or a hood. Well, he's kind of the thing that nightmares are made of. And to this day, he has yet to be found. Hello and welcome to episode four of My Passion Case. This week's guest is Mike Morford of the Criminology Podcast, and we are going to discuss the Golden State Killer, as you could tell from the trailer. So I'm not even going to dilly-dally around. We're just going to jump right into the conversation. So here we go. This week on My Passion Case, I am lucky enough to be joined with Mike Morford from Criminology. Thank you much for uh, joining the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: This week's passion case, I left obviously up to you to choose. So what has been uh, your passion case that you chose to discuss this week?
2: Uh, Probably the the biggest passion case that I've recently had was the Golden State Killer.
0: And what is it about the Golden State Killer that brought you or fascinates you? Because I mean, I think it's one of those cases that fascinates so many people that, you know, somebody of your magnitude, it's easy to get into, but it's very interesting for people who may not know or may be a layman to the to the case. Give me a little layout of what exactly happened.
2: Well the, the Golden State Killer case, as it's come to be known, started out locally in the Sacramento area in the in the mid-70s as a series of unsolved rapes. And from there it progressed through different areas of California and went down to Southern California and the uh, rapist became a full-fledged serial killer. And by the time it was all said and done, he had committed hundreds of break-ins, burglaries, assaults, rapes, and uh, over a dozen murders. So, and, and to see how many times he did it and got away with it repeatedly using the same very specific methods time and time again, is it it's just mind-boggling to know that he was able to do it that many times. And I think that's what, what draws me to the case. What time
0: frame was this going on? So in, in
2: 1976, the uh, East Area Rapist in Sacramento got started. But before that, back in 1974, there was a series of home break-ins. Not so much rapes, but home break-ins in Visalia, California. And it's not super close. It's, it's a pretty good distance away. Uh, but the, the M.O.s were different. The, the, the descriptions of the person doing those break-ins were different in, in the Visalia Crimes. It was somebody that was focused heavily on getting in houses, going through people's stuff, stealing things, going through their personal belongings, uh, and they were very, you know, prolific doing it. And sort of the same way the East Area Rapist was prolific in getting into houses in Sacramento. But it wasn't until the arrest of the suspect. Joseph D'Angelo, that those crimes were officially linked through by police. So the Visalia Ransacker, as he was known, and the East Area Rapist and the Golden State Killer were all one and the same.
0: Now, did they have any like suspicion at the time that the Visalia Ransacker was connected to any of the other rapes or murders?
2: There were a couple of schools of thought. Some people thought that the East Area Rapist was a separate totally separate offender, he was described as lean, athletic, whereas the Visaya Ransacker was described as bulky, heavier, thick. Since the crimes sort of overlapped or there's a very short time in between, when the Visaya Ransacker uh, uh, break-in stopped and the East Area Rapist Uh, Attacks started. You know, it was a period of months, and we know now, since they're the same person, that the offender must have gone through some physical transformation because his his uh, physique and description was a lot different once he started those rapes.
0: Yeah. So, what actually led? So, he was the ransacker, and then what made him step up to you know becoming a murderer?
2: You know, I, I think, and you know, I. I want to say that we're going to find out at trial. I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it does, but I somehow don't think he's going to make it. But I I don't know that we'll ever know uh, other than, you know, we see a lot of times in some of these predators, these offenders, that they have this evolution of it starts out as peeping Tom, and then they want to push a little further, and they want to go inside the house, and then they want to, you know, go through a woman's undergarments and then they just keep pushing it. And then sooner or later, that thrill isn't enough and they have to take the next step. And I think as we see in some of the crimes where he moved down to Southern California, especially, you know, the first couple of attacked down there, he, he, he was mumbling, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And that's what prompted the couple to fight back and escape because he was mumbling, I'm going to kill them. He kept saying it over and over to himself. Like he was getting the courage up to do it. And they fought for their lives and took off and escaped. After that, none of his victims lived. So, you know, I think we just see this evolution of, of, of a warped mind just disintegrating as it, as it goes along through the series.
0: So, back to like Vesalia and, you know, D'Angelo and himself, like, was there questions at the time that this person may be somebody in law enforcement?
2: there there was always there's so many different theories about who the person was uh, you know and and law enforcement was something that people considered because he always seemed to know when to attack and how to escape and not come into contact with anyone and sometimes it seemed as if he had maybe a police radio because he was on top of you know what was going on and to do that many attacks and never and never really um, come close to getting caught is is pretty amazing. And down in Southern California, the probably the closest he ever came to getting caught was during the attack where he got away, the couple that escaped. He was actually chased on a bike because their neighbor happened to be an FBI agent and he chased him, chased him for a couple blocks and, and he escaped on a bike and was able to elude him. But th- there weren't many instances where he was close to being caught. And that was one of them. And in most of the cases, just about all of them, they never saw what he looked like, so he had that going for him, too, because he always wore a mask and nobody was able to see him. Ironically, in Visalia, probably one of the things that scared him away from there early on in 70, you know, before he became the East Area Rapist, was that a police officer named Bill McGowan was staking out the area at night because this guy was so prolific, he was striking almost nightly. So they started doing these nightly stakeouts. And this uh, officer McGowan spotted someone creeping around one night and pulled his flashlight, pulled his gun and told him to freeze. And he sees this guy standing there without a mask on and he throws his hands up and says, please don't shoot me. Don't hurt me. And, you know, the officer lets his guard down for a split second. and. The Visay Ransacker pulls a gun and and shoots at him, and luckily the officer survived, but it shattered his flashlight, and he got glass in his eye, and and the uh, Ransacker is able to escape on foot. But between that and and a murder happened there, too, during an abduction of, of a young girl. Her father was a man named Claude Snelly, and he tried to abduct a girl and get her out of her bedroom, which is the first confirmed time that that attacker you know physically harm somebody and try to try to pull them out of a house uh, and Claude Snelling tried to stop it and he was shot in the process so between the, the, the shooting of the police officer and, and the murder of Claude Snelling, I think that's what prompted him to get out of that area and leave. And then months later, we see the Sacramento activity starting and Visalia comes to an end.
0: He, you know, he definitely does seem to evolve as, you know, his crimes. You know, it, it makes you wonder, what was he getting the high from? Was he getting the high from breaking in or was it the high from the control? I mean, how do you feel about that?
2: I think it was all of the above. I think, you know, I, when they look at people like this, they'll tell you that, hey, it started out as I just had this urge to spy on these people. And then I just wanted to go in. And then, you know, sooner or later that, that what they're getting, the satisfaction from, they're getting from that isn't enough. And then they have to do the next thing that excites them. And it slowly progresses until, you know, I want to dominate this victim and, make her husband or her significant other watch helplessly as, as I do this. And then it becomes about the power and we see that going along. He's, he's in that control and that seems to be what really, what dominates his fantasy and his desires to be in control and, and inflict fear on these people.
0: Well, I kind of recall, and I don't know if this was just uh, something that was rumored, but that he actually attacked somebody who had spoken up, about protecting his wife, and he kind of attacked, returned and attacked his wife and him and kind of put them in that position. Do you remember that?
2: Yeah, so they, they had these town hall meetings where, you know, they were warning the town, hey, what? here's what you can do to defend yourself. And it sounded, you know, the police were telling what's going on, and it sounded so implausible to, to many people that one of the men in the crowd stood up and said, I just don't believe that if someone came in my house in the middle of the night, I'd protect my wife. There's no way he's going to gain entry into my house and, and attack my wife and me let him get away with it. Well, months later, that couple was attacked and his wife was raped. Um, so I think it it was clear that unless it was just a really amazing coincidence that, that the offender was in that meeting and... Heard and saw that and followed him and put that on his list of houses that he was going to target.
0: Yeah, because this isn't like technology back then. They were, you had to be there to hear that. It wasn't, you know, something that was getting reported necessarily in the news. And so, okay, so he, as far as D'Angelo goes, what led him to, like, he was a police officer, but where was he working and what led him to being not a police officer?
2: So he had taken some some courses, some college courses in the Sacramento area. Uh, then he transferred out towards the Visalia area, and the, he was in the adjoining town. He wasn't a Visalia police officer. The name's escaping me right now. But the next town over, he was a, a police officer. And then he transferred back towards Sacramento, towards the Auburn area, and he was a police officer officer there uh what's interesting is he transferred there after the visalia ransacker crimes stopped um so it seems Mm -hmm. like he wanted to distance himself from the visalia crimes and get a fresh start over in auburn which is what he did
0: did they actually have him on any suspect list when they eventually did arrest him i mean were they able to look back and go oh you know what we (laughs) actually interviewed him
2: No, absolutely not. He wasn't. And you'll hear little rumors of of someone saying, well, we had him on our list or we were aware of him and and this kind of thing. He wasn't on anybody's radar. I can tell you that. I've talked to several investigators that have worked on this case, old ones, new ones, uh, and no one had this this guy's name on their list. So uh, when I hear that, I sort of snicker because, you know, some people want to, come along after the fact and say, oh, I I knew about him and he he was one of my suspects. But that's just not true.
0: Yeah, I I think that's going to go for a lot of different cases that have remained unsolved. If they do get solved, I think that a lot of people like pretend to fit a square peg into a round hole and say, oh, uh, yeah, that was me. I I figured that out long ago, but uh, I didn't get the due process. But the case itself, I mean, the Golden State killer, I mean, he hasn't been actually trial hasn't occurred yet
2: yeah and at this point who knows when it's gonna i mean i've heard two years i've heard five years i mean he's 70 74 years old almost i think so and he's looking very very frail he's lost a lot of weight since he's been in prison Mm -hmm. um so i honestly don't know if he'll make it to trial which which is a shame because i just you know maybe we'll find out some some details that are missing in in a trial uh, but in my personal feeling, which is, and I've thought this before he was ever caught, that if he was caught, he would not share any details because he's, he's a coward. You could tell by his, his crimes of breaking into a house at night while someone was sleeping, shining a light on them when they're just 100% asleep and vulnerable. It takes a certain kind of uh, coward to do that. So I always felt that whoever... The killer was he was a coward and and d'angelo it makes sense that he's not saying anything and he's probably not going to say anything i just think he's a coward at heart and it's showing now and he'll take whatever secrets to the grave that he has
0: you just think he's just kind of given up and he's accepted the fact that well they've they've caught me um I'm, I'm done and uh i'm not going to say anything
2: i i think so I, and i think again because i think he's a coward you know he has Uh, kids he has an estranged wife he does have some family and i think he has grandkids so maybe part of it shame or embarrassment but again as the kind of person that he was he may not feel shame or embarrassment i don't know he's not talking so i don't think anybody really knows what he feels but um you know i just think that he doesn't want to own up and take credit for raping you know, he raped girls as long, as young as 12 years old and, you know, he bludgeoned people, you know, so I, I just don't think that he wants to own up to all those horrible things that he did and and admit to them. I think he'd rather take the coward's way out. As a matter of fact, he was on suicide watch in the jail because I think if given the chance, he probably would would take his own life. That's just my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I think that with a lot of serial kill, I mean, we just saw it with uh, Epstein, you know, I mean... You kind of once you're painted into a corner and you don't get to live the life that you wanted to live you just take the coward's way out and you know you end your life and it it's so unfair to the victims too um, if they don't get this case to trial because they do need some sort of justice and there were people that survived i mean it wasn't that he killed everybody but i mean how many people did he actually i mean he was a prolific attacker i mean like one of the worst in the history of america yeah. how many victims did you do you think he actually you know i mean i'm not going to say you know narrow it down to murder but like overall like how, how many people do you think he actually like assaulted
2: Rape itself is usually an underreported crime. And we know of 50 rape victims. Um, I know he's a suspect in in a few other ones, but I just think there's other people that never came forward for whatever reason, shame, guilt, um, um, whatever. I I think there's other victims out there. I don't know that there's dozens more out there, but I'd be surprised if there's not more. And as far as we know, he killed 13 people. I think that number could be higher too. And then you look at his, his home break-ins and burglaries. You know, those are in the hundreds. And and, and it goes, and, and unless you're really familiar with this case and you know all the things he did, I mean, he would break into these people's house houses weeks and months in advance, walk around their house, go through their stuff, take little souvenirs, unlock windows, hide uh, rope and stuff like that in different areas where he could come back and use it when he attacked them. Um, he would call them on the phone before and after the attacks taunting them so if you think of the hours that went into the terrorizing and everything that he did it, it's insane it's mind-boggling and to think that he actually had a full-time job on top of it i i, I to this day i still don't know how he slept because between his reconnaissance and his prowling and his attacking and full-time job, plus he had a wife, I just don't know when he was able to accomplish all that. I almost I almost have to think that he was doing some of it while he was doing his uh, police work.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, he's so diabolical. And to think that I do believe that he probably did do a lot of that surveillance and stuff while he was working. I mean, he wasn't working for, it, it wasn't a huge force or anything like that. I mean, he and, and I and I believe that they've even said that like he may have been able to sneak away for, but that I mean, we're talking like what was it, forty five minutes away at least.
2: Yeah, it wasn't right around the corner. So uh, you know, if, if you if you start I mean, 45 thinking, forty five
0: minutes from here, in my in Cleveland is like yeah. that's like the, literally like the other side of the city. Yeah, uh, for you, you are living, you know the East Coast, so you know, forty five yeah. minutes traffic wise, you could move. For me, miles.
2: I just I, you know, a lot of the stuff he did, he did at night. He was witnessed prowling at night. People would hear things at night. They would see someone in their yard at night. A lot of the stuff he was doing was at night. Which leads me to think that he crept out of his house when he was supposed to be asleep and did all this stuff, a lot of it. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you're married or not, but me, if, if if I leave my bed for an extended period of time, uh, my wife at some point is going to come out and look for me. I just, It's very unusual that this guy could go out, sneak out of his house, have all of this uh, stuff that he did come back and slip right back into bed and his wife never wake up. Um, now I, I've heard some indication that he slept in a separate bedroom from his wife, but I haven't. That's not been verified.
0: Well, I mean, um, it's possible. I mean, we found that. I mean, there's there's a lot of cases that were like you know. I, I'm just saying, like personally, I've. I mean, I know of a ex-girlfriend. Her parents they slept in different bedrooms, but were in love. But he snored like a you know mother, so you know that's the way it goes. And you know they would preferred to have sleep over whatever. uh, but yeah, I I do think that that may have been a possibility, but that may have been the only explanation for how he could have gotten away. Because I know, like just like you said, if you were out of bed or I was out of bed for just a couple minutes, you wake up, they're not there, and you're gonna go look for them.
2: It, it just to me, you know, I could see getting away with it once or twice, but sure. I, if you're doing it every night, I just it it's mind boggling to think that he could get away with it. And I I wonder, and again, this is just speculation on my part. I don't know any inside information, but I have to wonder if his wife ever caught him coming in or going out at night. She hasn't come, you know, gone public and and talked about it as far as I know anywhere. So if it went to trial and she testified, and I guess as a spouse, even though they're uh, estranged, I don't know that she can be compelled to to Mm -hmm. testify against him but uh, I think actually she just recently divorced him if I remember correctly so um, Mm. maybe that doesn't apply anymore but um, I I almost have to wonder if she somehow had some knowledge that he was going out and maybe he told her a story maybe she thought he was running around on her with another woman I don't know but I I just find it hard that he could go out that many times and never be caught by his wife seems uh, unlikely
0: Yeah, highly unlikely. I mean, yeah. No, 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 no. There's too much there. I mean, with the amount of attacks, the amount of reconnaissance, the amount of, oh, God, I mean... You name it. I mean, there's just no way that she could have possibly not known that he was out of the house, at least. I mean, just just comes with being married. But, like, how much leeway are you going to give your husband? And, like, all of a sudden, all these people start showing up dead. Like, I don't know. Maybe you start questioning things.
2: Yeah, and, and who knows? And be something where he was dominant over her. She feared for him. I don't know. I'm just trying to make uh, guesses. And maybe mm-hmm. she learned from him, don't question me, you know, don't ask where I'm at. And, and maybe she feared him and, and he sort of controlled her that way. I don't know. But again, I just, I, I can't see him going out that many times on a routine basis and never being caught. And then, and then on top of it, When did the guy sleep? The guy is a human being. He has to sleep at some point, (laughs) whether it's three hours a night, four hours. He has to sleep at some point. So if you look at his, his job he's doing, um, you look at, uh, he's spending time whatever time he's spending with his family he's doing all this stuff at night at some point he has to sleep and I'm I'm still wondering when when he slept and maybe it was in the police car when he was supposed to be you know clocking people behind a sign with a radar gun maybe he's just sitting there sleeping I don't know but that part is is real puzzling to me
0: yeah I used to work for a uh, investigative producer for one of the uh, local news stations here in Cleveland and uh yeah that was like one of our jobs was to the city workers for <laughs> sleeping on the job so uh I, I could see it happening but uh i think you know i think he used that time to come up with excuses to be away from the department i think i believe i've heard interviews of the his captain or whatever like oh there's no way but come on i mean Again, the guy has to freaking sleep. His wife knows. I mean, there, there, are too many, there are too many pieces of evidence, in my opinion, that dictate that this occurred while he was technically working.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt it, some, some part of it at least. And that's, yeah, why I'm, I'm, that's why I'm hoping for a trial. I'm hoping that somehow some of this comes out in a trial. I'm just worried that we're not going to make it to a trial.
0: And let's take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor, I can't thank this week's sponsor enough, Podcorn. They make connecting podcasters with sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, topical discussions, and interview segments easy as can be. They took what had been a labor-intensive part of my podcasting process and make it easy for me to focus on what we as creators do best. Create. If you're looking for a way to monetize the hard work you put into your podcast, then look no further than Podcorn. You set the rate, you believe to be fair, and deal with the brands directly. There is no middleman. And at Podcorn, you will never give up any rights to your podcast. Their mission is to make sure creators like me are compensated in an appropriate manner. You can check them out on their website, podcorn.com. They have packages for podcasts of all sizes. And again, I can't thank them enough for making my life easier. I've provided a link in the show notes to check out what Podcorn can do for you. Yeah, it's it's going to be a shame if that doesn't happen because, uh, you know, you almost think, and I wish it was like, I'm not going to wear it. Like, I take that back because it's going to sound terrible. But it makes me think of BTK. And he was so willing to talk. And he was like, once you was caught, I was like, well, this is what I did. I mean, we hope, I think, that he would have that sort of open Miss, I, I honestly, that's that's what I think that we all hope. I just don't know yeah. if it's actually realistic.
2: I, th- I think it really comes down to their personality. As far as, as you know, a lot of the killers they want the attention, they want to brag when they realize, Hey, I've been caught, there's nothing I can do, I might as well get the attention for it now. So, so people like Dennis Rader start talking, and, and and he even reached out to investigators along the way, mailing letters and stuff oh, like that to them. So,
0: yeah, um, so.
2: whereas the you know the golden state killer didn't he didn't really correspond with with the press. Um
0: but he did correspond with victims.
2: He did correspond with the victims because he liked that personal terror. So he he wasn't above calling their their phone and and scaring them and taunting them, but as far as wanting the, to talk with police and open up a dialogue and talk about what he did, he wasn't into that. And and that seems to be the case now.
0: Yeah, I I mean definitely Yeah, the the fact that he would actually call a victim and taunt them or, oh God, I mean, we've heard some, I think we had one recording, maybe a couple of him actually like talking. The things that he said are so disturbing that it's terrorizing and it's terrorizing to like a whole, obviously, California. Um, But again, we didn't know much about the case really until the last few years i mean it was it wasn't it wasn't widely publicized let me just put it that way at least i i wasn't cognizant of it because they wouldn't they didn't piece together the fact that they were all together until what year was it it that they actually did that
2: it was well the the dna testing that was back in the 90s when they when they confirmed that when they first started doing dna and, and realized that hey we've got this uh This rapist is also this killer. But you're right. There were people in California that didn't, you know, up until three years ago, had never heard of the case. Because. In Sacramento, for example, he was known as the Easter Rapist. In Goleta, down near Santa Barbara, he was known as the Creek Stalker, the Creek Killer. In, I haven't in, heard that one yet. Yeah, in Ventura, in Orange County, he was called the Night Stalker. And that was before Richard Ramirez, but to end any of the confusion, they, they changed it to original Night Stalker because he was active before Richard Ramirez. So you've got all these different monikers. Yeah. Always All so over the place. Night
0: Stalker and, with Richard Ramirez.
2: Exactly. And and then you don't have the, the, the easy way of science or um, computers or, you know, interactions between departments. They can't easily link these cases together. And it wasn't until, um, you know, Paul Holes from Contra Costa County mm-hmm. um, looked at some old rape kits they had and, and did some DNA work with them and compared them to DNA from uh, an Orange County crime scene and, and link the two together. And then it was, you know, official at that point, but that's, that's one of the problems with, with the lack of it. So imagine people in California, don't even know about this killer so people out here across the country uh whether you're in ohio new jersey wherever they're not going to be as familiar and i think one of the things that really helped solidify that this stuff happened and this one offender did it was when michelle mcnamara coined him the golden state killer yeah Um, that sort of Gave it one name and people started using that and running with it. And it made it much easier to understand hey, this is one person. He did this, 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 and this. And we put it all under this umbrella of Golden State Killer. And that's really helped people understand it. So I think over the last couple of years, that's really gotten traction. And that's why the case is so widely known now. I
0: totally agree. I mean, if it wasn't for her and her understanding of the fact that, okay, he's called this, that, and the other, how the fuck are anybody, you know? Pardon my French, but how the hell is anybody gonna think about who this person actually is? I mean, they weren't great names to begin with, and like you had mentioned, Richard Ramirez, I mean, in the 80s, he stole the Night Stalker like name, so people weren't thinking this guy is the Night Stalker. If it wasn't for her, I don't know if like. I mean, obviously, it's the investigators that solved the case, but it was her that gave him the moniker of the Golden State Killer that really did help. And I and I and I have to say, from Ohio, you know, being a Cleveland person, you know, that was, like, one of those m- moments where I was like, wait, 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 this guy did this and that and the other? Like, are you blipping kidding me? Like, and we had never heard about this guy before? Like, it didn't make sense. And- yeah, it,
2: it, it's weird because... Uh, you know, I, I had worked a lot on the Zodiac case in California and I would periodically bump into East area rapist discussion or original night stalker discussion. And I would, you know, not that they were the same person because they weren't, but um, I would just sort of, it was like a parallel track. And I I had corresponded a little bit with, with Michelle McNamara and she had me on a guest on an old radio show that she had. And we started corresponding a little bit uh, about some different cases that we were interested in and she knew I did a lot of a lot of hardcore in depth stuff with the Zodiac case. Mm-hmm. And she told me one day that she was really uh doing a deep dive into this Golden State Killer case and it was consuming her. And she asked if if I'd have any interest in, in sort of jumping into it the way I had with Zodiac. At the time I was just too wrapped up in the Zodiac case to to have the extra time. Um, and then unfortunately she wound up dying, I think you know a year or two after I initially you know heard from her about that. So at that yeah. point I sort of became, yeah, you know, I said, well, I, I feel bad that she's gone and she was the biggest voice for this case. I, I hope somebody picks up the slack and, and, and keeps talking about it. And that's when I decided to jump into the case myself. Um, so once I, I jumped into the Golden State Killer case, it was just head first and I just got immersed in it.
0: Yeah. And it's definitely one of those cases you really can. And, you know, rest in peace, Michelle McNamara. I mean, she I've listened to her book. She's She was amazing. Just her dedication to the case and, you know, finding out who this person was. I think it's just testament to, uh, you know, a good author's investigative journalism. And, you know, we lose a lot of that in this day and age. And uh, yeah, I'm a journalist, but I, I understand that you can only get so much across in 20 seconds or yeah I mean you just it is what it is and uh it's such a shame that she'd passed away.
2: Yeah I think she would have really enjoyed seeing the the arrest and and learning more about him and stuff so that that's definitely uh um and then just she was so there's young. No re-
0: there's it no just, reason for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean no good reason at least in my opinion. I mean just yeah. like it wasn't something, <laughs> it just it's so unfair. The work she did was amazing and it really did bring the case to the spotlight and I think that in all reality it's crazy to think that her death and her involvement in the case may have actually been the things that actually led to this you know resolution or the current situation we're in but you know I hope she's resting in peace knowing that that she was a huge player in at least getting it to this point
2: yeah i i definitely
0: agree with that yeah i I just feel i, I feel bad for Patton. that i mean just being a, a husband and i just can't fathom so you know just, it's amazing that her work continues on and uh is really 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 well recognized by the true crime community uh real authors obviously and everything all that department but you know, she really did her due diligence in, in putting this case together and God, yeah. It's such a shame.
2: And I'm I'm happy that that Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes helped finish her book and get it out there since it wasn't complete when she passed away. So for them to continue carrying the torch and get it get it out there is is pretty admirable.
0: Yeah, I think that's a hundred I mean, one hundred percent right. And if you don't respect that, I mean like come on, that, that says it all. And, uh, again, I've heard, I've, I've read her book. It's, it's fabulous. If anybody has not, it's, uh, I'll be gone in the dark and it's, it's amazing. And if you're into the true crime genre or want to know more about the golden state killer, it's definitely uh, a great resource, a great resource. Do You have any more to say? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, about the book. Well, no, I just, I just no, no. I was just like that was just kind of my two cents in the book. Just yeah, yeah. Uh, she's she's like I just I, I don't know. It's just one of those like oh man that but like you know, you yeah. know what I'm saying it's just God that just yeah what
2: a, what a shitty thing to happen. I think there is was a um looking back at it it was really a a team effort in in I think Michelle had a big hand obviously in naming the killer and making that name like a brand where. It, wherever people went across the country after that, they started recognizing that name. Mm-hmm. Um, but the work, the the work to solve the case, you know, I've got to give credit to all, all the investigators that have worked on this. I mean, you've got people like invest, the original investigators, Carol Daly and Larry Crompton, um, people like that, Richard Shelby, that are, they've been retired, you know, 30 years and they're still, they were still making the rounds up until the arrest willing to talk about the case, hoping the guy would be caught. So they would do different shows and they'd come on podcasts. Um, and, and then you've got modern day investigators, people like Erica Hutchcraft in Orange County, uh, Paul Holes, who was in Contra Costa County, Mm -hmm. um, Larry Poole down in Orange County, um, You've got um, people up in Sacramento too. Um, there's a, there's a couple different guys there um, that just you take all their work together um, and and just the amount of time that they put in, the amount of uh, research. That they did and investigating and a, and a lot of it was all trial and errors. Hey, you know, I think this, and I'm going to check it out. And they'd go down all these blind alleys and you know have dead ends, but repeatedly they would go back over and 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 just start over. You know, to me that would be very frustrating. But you know, I I've spent. You know, I've been fortunate enough to become friendly with a lot of those investigators. And, you know, the time they would speak with me on the phone about the case and just we would ramble on about these, what if this, what if that? And and a lot of times they'd be like, I went down that avenue, I did this, I tried that. Uh, and you could tell they were frustrated. You know, there's a, uh, an investigator, Ken Clark, out of uh, Sacramento. He spent, you know, I don't know how many hours he spent uh, trying to find cat burglar crimes and and put those all together and see if any of them could be uh, the Easter rapist. And, you know, so I really applaud all those people past and present that worked on the case because their, their time and their diligence is is what ultimately led to the, you know, Joseph D'Angelo being arrested. And of course, you know, we got to thank DNA and and forensic genealogy now because that's become how many people have we seen get arrested since then uh, using the same method. So um, whenever you got law enforcement coming With advances uh, in science and and teaming up with with good police work, I think the outcome is going to be pretty good in a lot of cases.
0: In regards to like familial genealogy and all that, is that it may not have been the first time, but I I don't know if exactly it was the first time that they used it, but it was within that time frame. Kind of like, it's kind of like, It opened the door to everything that has happened. And it's the new wave of true crime, the new wave of uh, investigating, the new way of finding out who may have done this. But genealogy has been something that has been a part of human existence forever. But like having the technology now to be able to use that for solving cases or uh, bringing cases to a closure. It's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah.
2: And it's, it's, it's crazy to think there's 200,000 unsolved cold cases in the country right now. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if I don't know the percentages that have DNA, but whatever cases have DNA, those agencies that have those cases should be trying to, to, solve the cases using this method because it's not, it's not a fad. It's not something that's, uh, we know it works, (laughs) you know, the proof with all these arrests, uh, that works is, is right there. So, um, you know, is it going to solve every case out of the 200,000 in this country? Definitely not. But if it can, it can solve a lot of the cases and bring, you know, answers to a lot of these families that have been waiting for it, then it's, it's, in my opinion, it's something that's worth doing.
0: Yeah. I recently did a, Like a five parter with Bill Thomas from the uh, Colonial Parkway murders. And he's, you know, a big proponent for all the genealogy. And it is one of those amazing technologies that can be used. And thank you for the Golden State Killer in that regard that makes this door open to other cases that, you know, again, like you said, it's not going to solve every single unsolved case, but if it closes some of them hell that's that's a lot of progress and that's taking what we have as technology in 2019 and using it the right way and, and and there are so many cases out there that haven't been run through that test you know that testing system or um you know what I'm talking about like it's just i think we're just all waiting for that to happen where it's just easy to like the technology you can just kind of put it through this you know the system and like a conveyor belt and doot, doot, doot. <laughs> you know hey here you go here's 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 jim schmin you know
2: like that's uh- that's the probably the condensed version of it, but yeah, I mean, it, it essentially, <laughs>
0: uh, that's the, Let's put it this way: that's the Jurassic Park. Uh, that's a Jurassic Park version of genealogy and DNA.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but for all intents and purposes, yeah, you're you're going to upload a, a data from a, a profile uh, into a database, and you're going to find. Um, likely relatives and then you're going to find the closest relatives and then you're going to start narrowing them down and building family trees. Right. Um, and so it's, it, it's definitely a lot of work. It's not put it in a computer and a second later it spits out a name. That would be great. But, um, no. you know, there's a lot of good people that are doing that kind of work, you know, CC C. Moore and Colleen Fitzpatrick oh, are, are two people that, that are having a hand in, in solving all these cases and identifying uh, previously unidentified uh, remains of people. So um, I, I think it's just the way going future is just going to be one more tool that, that police can use to, to help a lot of families.
0: Yeah. I think it's a, uh... Definitely new technology that uh, they can add to their toolbox and uh, I think we can all be confident or at least hopeful that it can lead to resolutions in older cases as well. I mean, in newer cases, it's like, I mean, with like the digital footprint, I mean, come on, give me a break. We know where everybody is pretty much any time of the day.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Just so, one more tool to, to help solve some cases.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that's really awesome. So uh do you have any final thoughts on the Golden State killer and D'Angelo since you know he hasn't been brought to trial, but hopefully he will be. So you have uh Joseph D'Angelo in custody, but he hasn't been brought to trial. Do you have any final thoughts on, on what's going on with the case?
2: Well I again it's it's all about if it makes a trial and how soon that happens, I know that the victims the survivors and the family members all want to be there and hear what happened and learn the truth. And, you know, I've, come to be good friends with a lot of the, the people associated with this case. And uh, I think they, they've waited for so long, they deserve the truth. But I, I also think that if it didn't go to trial, I just feel that some of them are at peace now just knowing who did it, even if they don't get the rest of those answers about why and how. I've just noticed that some of them seem like they've some kind of calm has come to them. Um, just knowing who did it, I think has been, um, a relief in many ways, but obviously we still want to know what made him tick and how he did stuff. And, and maybe they can learn from that to stop people in the future, uh, that are like him.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, some of the stuff in trial, you know, if it doesn't go to trial, he pleads out or whatever. Um, unnecessary we don't need to know the exact details if it's something that uh they get an opportunity you know not to give mindhunter uh you know advertisement here but you know if they do get to like investigate a little bit further into his psyche and what made him tick and why he did what he did i think that is at the end of the day going to be the most valuable thing out of his you know, apprehension. I mean, other than closure for every single one of those victims, you know, I think if we can learn something about this, about what drives you to do something so, you know, so off the wall, but still maintain a job, still maintain a family, it's very much BTK style or BTK. I just think it's, it could help maybe future cases.
2: I oh, mean, no, no uh, doubt. No doubt. There's, there's so many people doing bad stuff like this. And if, if learning from somebody like him helps stop some of those people, then, you know, it's, it's a good thing.
0: Yeah. And I hope that, you know, once you're caught, you just kind of give it up, you know, make it known how you did it. Let people know. I mean, if you can do anything to better, better the situation that you've put yourself in and every single victim that you put, the best part would be to explain why. And we could use that as a learning tool. And you could be a, you know, not to give them any credit because we're not going to do that, but like it could be helpful. That's all I'll say to that. Yeah. And,
2: I, and to, to me, I just wonder, I wonder if some of these people even know why they do what they do. I, I think some of them don't understand it and just don't have any comprehension of why they did, did what they did. But again, you put them in a, in a certain atmosphere and you know, like a mind hunter style environment and learn from them as best as you can and figure out how to stop future people. From, from doing the same kind of stuff.
0: I definitely agree with you on the uh, first part of that statement as far as they don't even know what, drives them and i think that might be the biggest problem with a lot of cases in a lot of situations is not necessarily understanding why it is that they act the way that they do it's just it is what it is i mean like if you're insane i mean you don't i don't even know if it's insane if that's like if that's just too much of a catch-all it's like unfair to like say but you know these freaking people are doing what they're doing but they don't maybe, maybe they don't know why they're doing what
2: they're doing I have an urge to to attack and and bound this woman up and and sexually assault her, but I don't know why I have that urge. You know, I wonder if if some of these guys ever wonder why they can't stop themselves or what's making them think that. So it's that's a, I guess a whole other conversation for another day.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Criminal psychology. Yeah. I'm all in, I'm on board. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining me this week on my passion case I think that your uh, insight into the Golden State Killer is invaluable and uh, your show is fabulous and if uh, listeners would like to check out your show where would they uh, be able to find it
2: well you can find criminology the the podcast itself on any podcatcher, any pod player that you listen to podcast on if you're looking for the golden state killer series in particular all of our older shows older than six months are on stitcher premium on, the, on that app and the golden state killer season is on there as well Um, but the stitcher premium, you get a 30 day free trial with, so, um, not saying to go over there, use the trial and then bail, but, uh, they've got a lot of great content and our entire series is on there. So if you want to check that out, you can, and we've got interviews on there with, with lots of the victims, survivors, police, uh, different witnesses, um, and, and a lot of good insights into the case using some of the actual police files and reports that, that were supplied to us by, uh, law law enforcement so if you'd really like a deep dive on it definitely check it out we've we've had a lot of people tell us they really love that season and it's been in particular one of my favorites too awesome
0: yeah all my uh listeners love a deep dive so uh that is a fabulous recommendation and uh again thank you so much for joining me on my passion case and uh thank you again
2: i appreciate it bill thanks
0: all right now i'm gonna stop recording okay Thank you so much again for tuning in to another episode of My Passion Case. And thank you again to Mike Morford of the Criminology Podcast. I'll provide a link to his show in the episode notes, or just search for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'll be dropping new episodes every Monday wherever you get your favorite shows. And if you enjoy My Passion Case, you can help support the show by clicking on the Donate button on the right-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W, or via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Again, I will also provide a link in the show notes. Any amount is appreciated, and it really does help keep the podcast running. For the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed and My Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. If you've never been, it is a must for all true crime fanatics. If you do enjoy the show and would like to leave a five-star review, that would be great. It does help keep the show in the spotlight. I will be dropping new episodes of my other series, Who Killed, every Friday. And you can find new episodes, again, of My Passion Case every Monday. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered... As well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys again so much for listening this week, and until next time, be safe. OhioMysteries.com
2: Hello, everyone.